Lord, teach Thy people to love the best of all dwellings, Thy Scriptures best of all books, Thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore Thy glory. Help us to keep always Thy day, the first of days, holy unto Thee, our Maker, our Resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them today to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 and following, but it will be helpful for us just to go back and read the verses that precede. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 13, and then we'll concentrate on just 9 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. One of the things we said that's a unique feature of the Gospel of John is this series of contrasts that you find throughout the entire fourth Gospel. The contrast between heaven and earth, life and death, and between light and darkness. And that contrast is right here at the very beginning where the Word by whom all things were made is described as the light. And in today's text, the one we're going to look at, the true light, which enlightens everyone who was coming into the world. John describes this Word who will become flesh, who we know, of course, is Jesus Christ as the light, the true light. Now, we've talked about light already so far in this study of John's Gospel. We said that light in the ancient world in the first century had primarily two functions. One was produce warmth, and the other one was to bring about illumination. That is the primary function of light, and that's exactly what the readers of John's Gospel would have understood. That that one who created all things, that one who is God, that one who sustains all things, who took on flesh, was the one who came to bring illumination and to warm our hearts to the message of the gospel. But what is interesting is here in verse 9, he is described as the true light. True light. In Greek, there are actually two words that are translated in the New Testament as true. And they sound alike, and that's because they're closely related to each other. The first one is alethes. And it means true as opposed to false. A true statement is a statement that is not false. It is not untrue. 
But the other Greek word, which is closely related to it and sounds a bit like it, is aletheinos. And it is also translated into English and in the New Testament as true. But it doesn't mean true as opposed to false. It means full as opposed to partial. All right, The true light is the full light as opposed to the partial light. Or as we would say in a court of law, you swear to what? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So when John describes Jesus, the word, the logos, as the true light, what he is telling us is that Jesus is the fullness of light. He is the fullness of illumination. Now, there are a number of things that follow from that. One of the things that follows from that is that it is implying, of course, that the world in which we live is dark. That's why the light had to come into the world, is because we are living in darkness. And John's going to go on to say that. He said, a people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. So the first thing that follows from it is that you and I live in a world that is darkened. It has been darkened by sin. It has been darkened by corruption. It is darkened as a consequence of the fall. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the world is entirely dark. You know, you can get very pessimistic about this, and sometimes Christians do. They come to the conclusion that there's really nothing good out there in the world, that all is bad. Now, both of the extremes are dangerous here. You can say, oh, the world is a wonderful place, and the world is is great, and there's no darkness at all in the world, which you'd have to be a fool to look at all of the disasters and catastrophes and misery and pain and suffering and poverty that we see in the world and say that there's nothing dark about the world in which we live. The opposite is also dangerous, and that is to conclude that there's nothing good out there in the world. Because that simply is not the case either. Keep your finger there in John for just a moment and go back, if you will, to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. It's important that we will do this because you'll notice, and we've already pointed this out, that John and Genesis begin in the same way. There are echoes of that first book of the Bible in the fourth gospel. But let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1 for a moment. This is as God is coming to the conclusion of his creative activity. And you get to verse 31, and you read these words, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. It wasn't just good. He pronounced a benediction on each successive act of creation, and he said, It is good, it is good, it is good. But when he gets to the last day here, and he looks at everything that has been created, he says, it is very good. God created a good world. Now, that world has indeed been tainted. It has been marred by human sin, by the fall. We recognize that. Paul himself is going to go on to say later in this same epistle that all of creation moans as in travail, longing for redemption. But that doesn't mean that every, every ounce of light has somehow been extinguished. There are still bright spots out there in the world. And as Christians, we of all people should gravitate toward them. That's one of the reasons why Paul says elsewhere, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, think on these things. So yes, the world is dark. That's why the light is needed. 
But it's the true light because there are other lights out there, but they are partial lights. They are not the fullness of the light. Even in our fallen state, human beings can do some extraordinary things, and that's due to the fact that we are made in the image of God. We are a reflection of His glory and His majesty. I mean, if you look at history, you can see some of the sparks of genius. You know who they are. There are many others that could be added, but Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Archimedes, Galileo, Pascal, Franklin, Newton, Faraday, Einstein, Edison, Curie, Turing, Hawking. These were extraordinary individuals. They did extraordinary things, and they have made life better for us as a consequence. So we don't have to, as Christians, say that the world is completely corrupt. There's nothing good out there whatsoever. We don't have to be that pessimistic, nor should we be so optimistic to say that everything is just fine and dandy. We have to have a balanced and realistic perspective. The problem for us as human beings is not that we think that there are no sparks of light out there. The problem for us as human beings, and this is what John is getting at, is that men and women have a tendency to mistake the partial lights for the full light. That's the real problem that we face in our culture. We have a tendency to follow the partial lights or to mistake the partial lights for the genuine light. It would be like mistaking the light of a full moon for the light of the sun. It's not the same. It is a light, it is illumination, but it is partial. It is not the fullness of the sun. And so John says that the true light, the one that enlightens everyone, the fullness of light was coming into the world. That is his point. Now, it's worth stopping for just a moment and asking the question, what are some of the partial lights that people have a tendency to follow and as a consequence miss the full light, the true light which has come into the world? Well, certainly one of the things that people, at least in the 20th century, seemed to follow was this whole notion of progress. Everybody believed that the world was getting better. This was certainly true as a consequence of Darwin's trip to the Galapagos Island. As you all know, in 1859, Charles Darwin took a trip on the Beagle, and he came back with a provisional scientific theory for the origins and development of life. That became so popular and it caught on so quickly that people began to apply that provisional scientific theory to all of life. This became known as social Darwinism. And the idea was that we are all getting better and better. The race is advancing. Human beings are not what they used to be. And as progress continues on, eventually we're going to reach a point where there is no more war, there's no more sorrow, science and technology will solve all our problems. That's what many people believed. You all know that the 19th century was characterized by wars. Wars here in North America, wars across Europe. It was a, it was a, a century of warfare. But as we came into the 20th century with all of the scientific advances that were beginning to be made, there was a telephone, for example, and uh, there were all kinds of vaccines and so forth. Salk had discovered things, and there were all kinds. Penicillin had been discovered. There were marvelous things that were being done. In the 20th century, many people believed that eventually 
human beings would be able to resolve all of their problems. It's one of the reasons why the First World War, the Great War, was described as the war that would end all wars. Everybody expected that there would be one great catechismic struggle, but human beings by that point would realize that they had the potential to mow each other down wholesale in a massive way, and we would get over that. And indeed, there was one great world war. Hardly a, a major country in the world was not involved in it. Lasted from 1914 to 1918, and it was supposed to be the war to end all wars, and what was happening in 1938, barely 20 years later. If the First World War did anything, it diminished anybody's belief in progress, this idea that we are getting better and better. And certainly, as we look at the world today in the light of the Second World War, now that nations have nuclear arsenals, look at what's happening right now, the anxiety that we experience as a result of what's happening over in the Ukraine. I mean, who in the world wants to go to war with Russia? We don't want to do that. Why? Because we recognize the cataclysmic, disastrous results of that sort of conflict. But people in the 20th century believed that progress was inevitable. I don't know if many of you remember back in the World War II era and shortly thereafter, you used to go to the movies and they would show before you went to the movies newsreels from all around the world. How many of you remember that? Time Life Corporation put out one. It was called the March of Time. And it would always start with the stirring drum roll and the blast of trumpets and this, this, this voice of an assured, confident announcer. And it gave you the impression that the world was marching on. It was called the March of Time, after all. And even though during the war years there might be a, a temporary, momentary military setback, nevertheless, most people believed that somehow things were moving forward. That is not the impression that most young people have today. The vast majority of young people, those in their 20s, are absolutely convinced that the world is not moving forward. Things are not getting better and better. This generation has been described as the anxious generation. So one of the partial lights that people followed, at least in an earlier day, was progress. But people are not so assured or confident about progress today. What's another partial light, however, that people follow? Well, the other partial light is prosperity. Follow prosperity. The more you have, the happier you will be. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's what many people believe and many people follow it, that that is the way to contentment, to amass as much stuff as you possibly can. Do you know that the suicide rate is higher in the wealthiest countries in the world than it is in the poorest countries in the world? It's because even though we have everything that money can buy, nevertheless, our hearts are empty. But these are two lights that people have followed over the decades, hoping to find fulfillment, contentment, and being greatly disillusioned. Now, I don't want to suggest to you that there is no such thing as progress, and I don't want to suggest to you that prosperity is necessarily a bad thing. Not at all. We can be thankful for progress. We can be thankful for the progress that has been made in technology that has made our lives easier, although that's a double-edged sword. 
You know, all of these things that we call time-saving devices that are supposed to free us up so that we have more time to relax. How many of you find that that's been true in your life? Really what they do is they give us the opportunity to do more. Our lives have not become less busy. They've actually become busier. But certainly we can be thankful, thankful for the advances that have been made, especially in the realm of science and medicine, my goodness, we're, we're living longer lives and healthier lives as a consequence of the great advances that have been made in science. And we can be thankful for that. And we can be thankful for prosperity. This is one of the things that I've always found impressive about Christianity. Wherever Christianity has gone in the world, it has always, always, this is just a, a fact of history, it has always left people better off financially, monetarily, health-wise, than they were before. Now, there's a double-edged sword to that as well. One of my favorite quotes, you've heard me use it before, by Cotton Mather, that great 17th century New England divine. He once said, the problem is this, wherever Christianity has gone, it has left people wealthier than they were before, but then the daughter devours the mother. And that is true, too, isn't it? Christianity makes us wealthy, but then our wealth inevitably devours the faith that produced it. So I don't want to suggest to you for one minute that progress, prosperity, these are bad things. They are not. We can be thankful for them. But we need to recognize that while they are not false lights, they are nevertheless partial lights. They're not the fullness. You're not going to find true illumination, true contentment, happiness in any of the things of earth. But if you look at the moon, whatsoever, and it's a full moon, you know that there must be a light that's even greater shining somewhere else. And that's what John is getting at here in this section. There was a true light which enlightens everyone that was coming into the world a full light. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It's ironic, isn't it, that he was the one who created all things. Paul in Romans basically said that his signature is written across everything that has been made. He is the fullness of light. Everything else is a mere reflection of his glory and his majesty, and yet we're told that the world did not know him. The world had somehow forgotten him. It's like the medieval story of uh, the king who ruled over a kingdom and he went off to fight a war and when he came back he'd been gone for so many years the people that he had reigned over forgot what he looked like. They didn't recognize him. And that's the picture that we have here in John. Man's response to the light is that we fail to recognize him. Why is it that we fail to recognize the light? Two reasons. One is because we are spiritually blind. You know, if you're blind, you wouldn't be able to see the light even if it came to you. Uh, The story that strikes home for me when I think about this particular section was told by Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. That may be a name that you're not familiar with, but Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great Presbyterian minister in the early part of the 20th century up until about the 1950s. 
He was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He, was, um, he had been a college professor and then went into the ministry. Um, he was a great Bible teacher, and he was invited all over the world. And um, he was invited to speak in Ireland at the very beginning of World War I, or World War II, excuse me. There, it was 1939, you all know that we got into the war at a later point, but at that point in 1939, they had blackout rules. So he had been told early on to have at least the latter part of his address that he was going to be delivering on a Saturday evening before Sunday. He needed to have that memorized because at one point, all the lights were going to go out. And so he started to teach. Uh, he was over there, I think he was in Belfast, and he was um, over there and he was teaching, and all of a sudden the lights went out. And he continued to teach. I, I can't imagine what the congregation was doing at that point. They, they could have been snoring, they could have been sleeping, who knows what was going on. But what happened that was so interesting was that the lights went out, he's continuing to teach. And all of a sudden, somebody like Brian McGreevy over there next to the wall leaned against the light switch and the lights came on. <laughs> and there was this commotion because everybody knew that the lights had to be out. There was a you know, fear of, of, of a bombing raid or something like that. So everybody was scampering to turn the lights back out again. And one man in the road, when everybody settled down, was saying, what happened? What happened? Why did he stop? Why did he stop? Why did he stop? And it became clear to Dr. Barnhouse that the man down in front didn't know what happened when the lights came on because he was blind. So the light came on, but the blind man didn't know it. Well, that's a picture of us in our spiritual state. The light had come into the world, but the world did not recognize him. The world didn't see it. Why? Because we were spiritually blind. So that's the first reason why when the light comes into the world, people did not recognize him, even though he was the creator of all things, John says. Here's the second reason why those who did recognize him rejected him. Now you say, why would anybody want to reject the light? Well, it's obvious. Tomorrow's what day? Valentine's Day. How many of you, and we've talked about this before, going out for a romantic dinner? Well, shame on you if you're not, and I don't know what you're going to do for your wives. You know, I hope you don't expect them to cook for you. But a romantic dinner is going to be by candlelight, isn't it? You're not going to have it under those white fluorescent lights. Why? Because they reveal all your flaws, all of your blemishes, don't they? We like soft light. Everybody looks better in soft light. But you go out in the full light of the sun and you can see every flaw. And when the light comes into the world, that's exactly what he did. He came to reveal our fallenness. And he reveals our flaws, our blemishes. That's the only way you know you need a Savior if you recognize that you're fallen. But that can be an uncomfortable thing. How many of you enjoy having your flaws pointed out? 
There's nobody that enjoys that. We all resist that. But here comes the light. And compared to Jesus Christ, what do we look like? You know, you may look good compared to your neighbor or the person sitting next to you. I will never forget um, going down um, the aisle in church one Sunday. I had an assistant, and he was fresh out of seminary, and he was newly ordained. I'd been ordained, I guess, for about 20 years at that point. And I um, put on my vest for church, and I started down the aisle, and I looked at him, and I looked terrible. I've been wearing the same surplus for 20 years. He was fresh out of seminary. He'd just taken it out of the pack. It had just come. And he put it on, and he looked so beautiful, and I looked so dingy. He looked like an angel. I looked like a fallen angel. I mean, it was just awful. The minute that that church service was over, I went to the secretary, and I said, you've got to order me a new surplus. I said, because compared to Matt, I look absolutely horrible. Now, by myself, standing by myself, I look pretty good. If you'd asked somebody, what is that? They would have said, well, that's white. You're dressed in white. But compared to him, I didn't even look off-white. I looked just flat-out dingy dirty. See, that's what we have a tendency to do, don't we? We have a tendency to compare ourselves to other people. And compared to other people, we might look pretty good. And if we don't look good compared to that person, well, we just don't hang out with that person. We'll hang out with somebody else who makes us look a little better. But when we stand compared to Jesus Christ side by side with him, even our best efforts are like filthy rags. And so we're resistant to the light. And that's what John is saying here. He's saying the world is dark. There are sparks of brilliance. There are sparks of genius. And we can rejoice in them, but they are not full light. They are part. And when the full light comes, people do not recognize it, either because they're spiritually blind or because it shows And that's a very uncomfortable thing, and we would much rather resist it. This is... Nothing new. Keep your finger there in John and turn to John chapter 3 for just a minute. We're going to start at verse 16. This, of course, is a very familiar passage to you. Jesus is in a conversation with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And Jesus speaks these beautiful words, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Here it is. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. So there you have it. 
Light has come into the world. It is the light that gives light to all men. But people loved the darkness rather than the light. Romans chapter 1. Those of you who are in the class on Romans, you're familiar with this section. You'll probably be very happy to get rid of it when we're through it. It's a very bleak picture of the human condition, but here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. That is to say, they put up the shutters. They pull down the blind because they do not want to see the light. They don't want to be exposed by the light. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says it's not just a problem for a particular people, it's a problem for all people. The message of Jesus Christ, he said, is a stumbling block to Jews and its foolishness to Greeks. So I said when John says that the light is into the world, but people refuse the light, he said that there are a number of things that follow. He said, first of all, the world is dark. That all lights that we have, while they are light, they do bring illumination, they are partial light at best. It also raises the question of when it comes to the fall, and that's one of the reasons we're spiritually blind, and that's one of the reasons why we reject the light is because we are fallen. It raises the question just how far did we fall? We all recognize we're fallen creatures. That's one of the reasons why we resist the light. Here's the question, how far did we fall in the fall? I want to suggest to you that there are three answers that are generally given to that, as far we have fallen in the fall. One view is that we really didn't fall backward at all, we fell forward. That's the notion of progress, (laughs) that if we have fallen at all, we've fallen forward. It may have been in fits and starts, but we're making progress, (laughs) If you fall up the stairs, well, it may not be a pretty sight, but at least you're moving in the right direction. And there are some who believe that. That's inevitable progress, that in spite of everything that's going on in the world, we're still getting better. As I said, I think most people today have been disabused of that idea. The second view is that mankind, when we fell, well, we fell partway. I I always imagine it as like falling down a well. And you've you've fallen partway down the well, but you've caught on to a a ledge, and and you're not the whole way to the bottom. You're you're still holding on, and if somebody will just drop you a rope, then you can perhaps climb up out, and that's, of course, what religion is all about, right? I'm not perfect. I've fallen partway down the well. But if somebody, religion, will just throw me a rope, then perhaps by good works, by my own efforts, perhaps with a little assistance from the church, I'll be able to pull myself up out of the well. And then there's the third view. And the third view is the biblical view. And the third view is that you and I have fallen down the well. And we have fallen the whole way to the bottom. And we have drowned in the bottom. And what God has to do is he has to come down into the well, into the darkness, and bring illumination, 
and pull our lifeless and limp bodies to the surface where He breathes into us the breath of life. And we who were dead become living beings. But people don't want that. Nobody wants to be told that they're spiritually dead. Nobody wants to be told that you can't do anything for yourself, that you are utterly, when it comes to spiritual matters, utterly hopeless, utterly helpless. And so even though there is an answer, even though there is a salvation, even though a light has come into the world, people resist the light. They'd rather remain in the darkness. Now those are sober words. But that's what John is telling us. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. But the world did not know him. He came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. That's the picture of the human condition, folks. And unless we understand how bleak it is, we can never appreciate the next verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's when you realize how bad off you really are that you recognize the value of the light. You long for the light, even though it it shows off all your flaws and your blemishes. The wonderful thing about the light is is that the one who is the source of that light loves you in spite of it. Let's be honest. Every single one of us put on a mask, don't we? We go around with this picture of respectability. But how many of you have secrets? I don't want to know what they are, but how many of you have secrets that you're fearful that if anybody else knew about them, they would think less of you? Anybody have that? Even your spouse. You know that there are certain things that you just are not going to share with your spouse. Certain secret desires, whatever it may be, that you're not going to even share them with your spouse because if they knew it, they might think less of you. What John is saying is that the light has come into the world And he reveals all of our flaws, all of our blemishes. He is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. He knows every dirty, impure thought and idea you've ever had or will have. And here's the important thing. He loves you in spite of it. See, that is the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is to be fully known and fully loved. So one thing we can never have on this earth, because we're dealing with other fallen human beings, but God is the one who is the light who reveals all of our flaws, and if we will allow Him, will love us in spite of them. And give those who are willing to allow their hearts to be under His searching, warming light He will give them the right to become 
children of God. That's a blessed thing. That's freedom, my friends. To be known for what you really are and to be loved in spite of it. Fully and completely and unconditionally. I'm prepared to move on, but that seems to me like a good place for us to stop today. The light is shining in the darkness, my friends. Don't turn away from it. Submit your lives to Jesus Christ. Give yourself over to Him. He's going to reveal things about you that you didn't even know. But He only does that in order to save you, to transform you, to make you into a better reflection of Himself. Let your heart be warmed by His light. Let Him show off all your flaws and blemishes and experience the fact that He will love you unconditionally in spite of it all. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Gospel of John. This prologue is filled with such significant teaching for our lives. It's not just high ethereal theology, it is very practical. Every single one of us in this room today, Lord, has secrets. There are things that we don't want anyone to know, so we keep them in the dark. But Jesus Christ knows, He sees, and He loves us. Grant us the grace to revel in that light and in that love. And like the moon, reflect that love to others. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.